Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we're asking how to give sex advice with my guest, Dan Savage. I suppose I ought to begin with a disclaimer that today's episode contains frank and sometimes explicit discussions of sex and sexuality. This is the first time in 15 years that I'd offered a content warning, which seems odd since this show has discussed many things more horrifying than sex. We've gone into details about war crimes, police violence, the horrors of racism, and the Holocaust. But American culture holds a very special reticence about the erotic. In a country full of guns, bigotry, and myopic factionalism, talking about sex is still the riskiest of topics. Philosophers, too, have shied away from explicit sexual commentary. With the noted exceptions of the Marquis de Sade and the Kama Sutra, philosophy tends to emphasize the ethical principles behind sexual activity. Is self-pleasure immoral? Should homosexuality or sex outside of marriage be considered beneath human dignity? So much that philosophers have written about is what not to do rather than how to do it well, and almost all of it is outdated, if not downright dumb and offensive. Which is odd, because sex is a key component of the good life. Certainly, there are asexual people out there for whom this is not the case, but for the vast majority, physical intimacy and eroticism are key components of happiness. To put it more crassly, almost everyone loves a good lay. Philosopher's silence on sexual instruction is odd for another reason as well. The history of philosophy is a timeline of unsolicited life advice, from methods of achieving enlightenment to theories of justice. The great thinkers are very happy to tell everyone how to live, how to treat others, and what it means to be a good person. Why, then, are they so reluctant to insist that giving your partner an orgasm first is a moral imperative, or that sometimes role-playing is the best way to relight a sexual spark? Advice is a form of education. It isn't enough to tell people what to do. You have to tell them why they should do it. Advice requires persuasion, and the best counsel doesn't simply solve problems, it prevents them. If a person is having difficulties in their sex life today, and you simply tell them how to act tomorrow, they'll just be dissatisfied again two days later. But if you explain why they should do as you advise, then they can apply your insights repeatedly. This is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. To know is to be aware of and to understand a fact, but to be wise is to be able to make good judgments. This is a lesson as old as Plato, and it applies to sexual behavior as much to any other area of inquiry. The issue, I think, is that sex is a complex combination of nature and nurture. We have biological needs that are hardwired into us, but how we satisfy them is cultural. Certain sexual acts that are encouraged in one community are condemned in another. How public our sex life is, how free women are permitted to be with their bodies, whether sex and gender are considered fluid, the social acceptability of cunnilingus or anal penetration, whether or not pubic hair is considered attractive. These all vary in place and time. Philosophers are not good with cultural relativism, and one community's turn on is another's degradation. And this is where a guest comes in. Dan Savage is probably the most well-known sex advice columnist in the English-speaking world. No question is too risque for him to handle, and no situation is too transgressive for him to have an opinion. He's frank, honest, and good-humored. But he also advocates a particular philosophy of sex, one which celebrates experimentation. 
communication, promiscuity, polyamory, mutual consent, and what I would call sex act equality. Everybody's got a thing, and nobody's is better or worse than any others. We're all going to do what we're all going to do. On today's episode, we're going to explore the world of sex advice with the intention of constructing a philosophy of sex that incorporates the realities of the modern world, the sexual freedoms and anxieties that come with dating apps, pornography, non-monogamy, and fluid sexualities, and we'll do it by turning philosophy on its head. We're not starting with theory and applying it to practice. We're beginning with actual people and their real-life experiences and seeing where that takes us philosophically. For some, this account of modern sex may be unrecognizable. For others, it might be de rigueur. But it is what it is. From the 1960s onward, we have been experiencing a perennial sexual revolution, and it's time to stop and reflect on the philosophies behind it, because the new normal may actually be that there is no normal at all. And now our guest. Dan Savage is an American author, media pundit, journalist, and LGBT community activist. For more than 30 years, his sex advice has been at the forefront of sex education and cultural change. Dan, welcome to Why. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Dan, this is super exciting for me. I just, I've been a, a real longtime fan, and I know this is going to sound odd. But I actually think you are one of my intellectual heroes. What you have managed to oh, do with... Too, I'm too Catholic for all, this, all these compliments. Like I, had, I listened <laughs> to you record the intro and I'm just like curled up in the fetal position on the floor now. Um, that's, that's very kind of you to say, but I hope it's not true. I'm well, not it, 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 it is true, but I'll let you feel the guilt anyway. Um, to do a little <laughs> business... Uh, our listeners, if you'd like to participate, please share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. TikTok is on the way. Our handle is always at Y Radio Show. Rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform so that others can find the show and listen to all 15 years' worth of episodes for free, as well as our sister show, Philosophical Currents, at our website, yradioshow.org. And as always... This show can only happen with your support. We exist solely on listener contributions. So click donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota Alumni Foundation portal. All right. So now I, I, I want to ask this question that, that, that has been floating in my head since I knew that you were going to be on the show. And it's as follows. I'm a professional philosopher. I'm hosting a show on a public radio network of a very conservative state. It's North Dakota Public Radio, after all. But we're about to have a frank an explicit conversation about sex, and that doesn't seem too far from the norm these days. So I guess the question I want to ask you is, how did we get here? When did public discussions about sex become socially acceptable? I think a, a major contributor to the, the discourse, if I can be jargony, about sex was the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Because in the early 80s, it was suddenly necessary to have conversations about not what we all thought and we all agreed publicly people ought to be doing in bed, but what people were actually doing in bed. And the HIV epidemic sort of turned a lot of our moral judgments about sexual activities on their head because things that were vanilla and quote unquote normal were riskier than things that had been dismissed as, um, you know, kinky or, uh, or, you know, immoral, um, penetrative sex, uh, vanilla penetrative sex, whether you're talking about heterosexual penetrative sex, which is the major spreader of HIV 
in Africa or um, homosexual penetrative sex, which is the major spreader of HIV in the West, was suddenly, that vanilla sex was suddenly riskier than a whole host of other sexual activities that I'm old enough to remember, um, you know, for instance, oral sex, which is much less likely to transmit HIV. I remember when oral sex was discussed in the 70s when I was a kid as something out there and, and weird and kinky because it was sex that was solely for pleasure. And there used to be this roiling debate about whether sex had to be procreative to be ethical or moral or permissible. And HIV and the way it slammed into first gay communities in the West and then became everyone's concern, uh, forced us to start having ex very explicit, frank conversations. And those conversations rolled into uh, uh, this sex positivity movement um, that's associated with San Francisco, although I never lived there. Um, and then things like my column began to appear in newspapers. And the real shift uh, with things like my column or Candace Bushnell's column, Sex in the City, as it originally appeared in the New York Observer, was suddenly we were having conversations in print, this is before the internet came along, where people were allowed to use the language that they actually used when they were speaking with their friends about their sex life and not switching into some sort of medical Sanskrit uh, that kind of held sex with tongs. We began to write and think publicly about sex the way we had been writing and thinking publicly about film or theater or, you know, restaurants or food, uh, sports. And that was a, a huge sea change. That is super interesting. And it's also not just history, right? Because there was a conversation about sex during the COVID epidemic that, that people had to pick partners that they were going to choose for the duration. Uh, I think it was Norway mm -hmm. that famously encouraged that. And there was also a discussion that happened not just on your show, but in a lot of other places, as to whether or not this was going to be the return of glory holes, right? This this place where people <laughs> give anonymous uh, anonymous oral sex because it was safer than kissing people, right? And exactly. So, the COVID epidemic, for those of us who lived through the HIV-AIDS epidemic, had very strange echoes. You know, the, the advice that I, as a young gay man, got in the early 1980s was less... Uh, more sex, fewer partners, or monogamous sex with one partner. That was the advice we got at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic. And, you know, for anybody out there who thinks I'm, um, you know, always permissive or uh, a hedonist, I got on my show at the beginning of the COVID pandemic and said, open relationships are over for now. Everything's closed. Um, just like, you know, the McDonald's library, <laughs> all the flights, restaurants, churches, uh, open is closed and be, because of, of this virus that was spreading fast. And we had to first prioritize our own health and safety, but the health and safety of our partners and other people that we would come into contact with. We had a collective moral obligation, um, not just to ourselves and our own intimates, but to wider communities. You also predicted that after the uh, COVID pandemic was over, we'd see a return to what you called the whoring 20s, which was this uh, 
<laughs> this sense that yeah. that after like World War One, when the, that generation decided that they didn't know if they were going to live to 40. So they might as well just have as much sex and as much pleasures as they want, that people were going to do this, too. Have you seen that happen? Have people responded with I don't want to call it a backlash, but but a, a spring back into uh, a kind of promiscuity that that the epidemics prohibited? I wouldn't describe it as promiscuity. That's such a, a, there's a moral judgment. There's a value judgment rolled up in that word promiscuity that people prioritized pleasure. And you see that not just sexually. You know, I was just reading uh, in the New York Times about how people are traveling and have been traveling at the rate they were traveling before the pandemic uh, now for the last year because people you know, put that pleasure off or weren't allowing themselves that pleasure or weren't allowed that pleasure during the height of the COVID pandemic. And everyone is making up for lost time. Um, and, you know, flights to Europe are packed and people are vacationing, uh, even as all those flights make the climate crisis worse. And you saw that too sexually. You know, people got back out there. The way we talked about it publicly, I think, uh, was, you know, the way the newspapers talked about it were, were things like hot girl summer and hot boy summer. And it was just a way of saying, you know, people are picking up where they left off and making up for lost time. You didn't like the word promiscuous, which I understand why. How hard is it to find a language of sex that is non-judgmental? So much of what we use from terms like maiden name to terms like slut shaming. Mm. Uh, have this baggage? Is it is it is it difficult to have a lexicon of words to use? And I want to zoom out for a second uh, on that. I'm not opposed to moral judgments. Um, sometimes people who are religious, and I have a lot of religious people in my family. My mom, literally on her deathbed, the last thing I did for my mom was went and got got her a priest um, and prayed with her. Uh, so I am not. I'm not antagonistic toward people of faith. And sometimes I've gotten into arguments, you know, I've gone to Christian radio, gotten into arguments with people about my anything goes philosophy. And I'm like, you obviously haven't read my column. If you think I'm anything goes, if you dump all of savage love into a pot on the stove and boil it down to its essence, you're left with do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You're left with the golden rule. Um, It's just that there's more that can be done unto a person consensually uh, in my universe than your universe. But still, it matters how your choices, your actions impact other people. And if they harm other people, that's not okay just because you wanted to do it or it felt good for you to do it. Um, So I'm not opposed to judgmental language. If you read Savage Love, my column, you will find sometimes very judgmental language in my column where I, I don't want to say shame. I try to make someone see what they're doing and why it's wrong. Is it, is it instinctual that, you know, you sort of just, just know when to apply that moral filter or are there certain things that press your buttons and certain things that really say to you, Dan, 
uh, you're going to have to <laughs> pardon me. You're going to have to spank someone right now. Uh, you're going to have to. <laughs> um, you're going to have to 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 lay down the law. Is 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 there a a method that you're aware of, or is it just does it just come to you and you react? I think it's case by case. Everyone has their you know um, the things that light them up. Uh, so I would be. I probably have blind spots. I think I'm being fair and impartial, and I'm sure there are times when I'm reactive. Um, to certain circumstances or situations. There are certainly things that I regard as as a, a bad thing to do to someone that other people don't. Um, it, you know, these days to say we live in a sex-negative culture it can sound weird because we live in a culture that talks about sex constantly, and I think we're more sex-positive a culture than we used to be. But it is often the case, and I get very upset about this, that... You know, people in committed relationships who have made and extracted a monogamous commitment from someone will not hold up their end of that bargain and feel like because they don't want to have sex or have sex anymore that they have a right to unilaterally end the sexual life of their partner to whom they promised to meet those sexual needs. And sometimes that promise is not made explicit um, it's not articulated. It should be. Uh, but it is implicit in a monogamous commitment that I will be your sex partner. You will be mine to the exclusion of all others. Um, that places on us an obligation to meet someone's reasonable needs. Not all of them. Not everybody. You never, no one gets everything they want. But it's often the case in marital counseling, sex advice, that the person with lower desire or no desire is the one whose level the other person is expected to fall to rather than some allowance or accommodation being made for the person who has a higher libido or still has a libido. You know, I have been writing my column for 30 plus years now. I find myself getting letters from people who are reading me when they were 20, 30 years old who are now 60 years old circumstances and desire change. Menopause has an enormous impact on uh, a lot of women's sexual desire, a lot of women's um, ability to physically enjoy sex. What do you do? What do you do to make the relationship function, work? I'm, I, am, I have such a pro, how do we make this relationship work bias? How do we get under the hood? What can we do here where one person isn't feeling pressured or coerced and the other person isn't feeling denied and resentful. What's the fix? And that can be openness. That can be some reasonable accommodation. That can be, you know, turning a blind eye to a certain amount of considerate, discreet porn consumption. There are ways for that need to be met or an allowance to be carved out uh, that still maintains and honors the monogamous commitment made decades ago or 10 minutes ago. Um, there are also ways to accommodate someone's needs that allow for outside sexual contact, which I'm sure in North Dakota, me saying that out loud on the radio is going to alarm some people. <laughs> and I have the burden of knowing certain things, including, you know, we've had same-sex marriage for 25, 30 years in, like, in the Netherlands. And there are studies now that have followed uh, married gay couples, married lesbian couples, married straight couples. And what they have found is, to the surprise of many, the couples who are most likely to divorce are lesbian couples, which 
most people think that two women, because women are the nurturers and the you know are socialized or biologically driven to focus on commitment, that lesbians should be the least likely to divorce. They're the most likely to divorce. Less likely, straight couples. Least likely, gay male couples. Gay male couples, most likely to be non-monogamous. Straight couples, more likely to be non-monogamous. Lesbian couples, least likely to be non-monogamous. So a certain degree of allowance for outside sexual contact, what these studies show us, uh, or at least we can hypothesize as we wait for more data to come in, is that non-monogamy, some permissible mutually agreed to allowance for outside sexual contact stabilizes long-term relationships. I want to pull that thread, but in a couple minutes, we're going to have to take a break, so I'm going to hold that off. I wonder if you could spend a couple minutes talking about the phrase sex positive. What does it mean to be sex positive, and what does it mean to be in a sex positive or a sex negative culture? Oh, there's a lot of writing coming out right now. Uh, there's a sex negativity movement. Louise Perry's, um, uh has a book out about the sexual revolution and saying that it was a mistake. The the Right to Sex, I can't remember the name of the author, Rethinking Sex by Christine Embo, which is a terrific book, um, and I recommend it. Uh, it challenges a kind of default sex positive, sex is good, sex is always good, people should have more of it and with more partners posture. That sex positivity movement was was a reaction to a culture that said sex is wrong, sex is shameful, um, and non-normative sexual desires are immoral. And the problem with telling people that non-normative sexual desires are immoral is you've basically told everyone that they're immoral because everyone has non-normative sexual desires, depending on what you think normal sex is. If you tell someone, picture normal, you walk into a room, unobserved, two people are having normal sex, um, what do you see? Or normal sex is happening in this room, what do you see? What, what's going on? And someone will say, well, it's a heterosexual married couple, the missionary position without contraception in the dark. And that is a tiny minority of the sex going on at any given moment on this planet. Even if the sex is between a married couple, it may not be missionary. It may not be open to procreation. Um, it may not be uh, penis in vagina or PIV sex as it's sometimes called. Um, even that married couple within the bounds of monogamous relationship might be experimenting, doing things that are non-normative. There was a really interesting study done in the UK where they wanted to measure the prevalence of what are called paraphilias uh, or kinks, non-normative sexual interests, desires. And they found that a majority of people have them, which means they're not non-normative. They are normative. There's something about human sexuality that pushes toward experimentation, improvisation, um, and I don't want to say perversion, um, but sex and eroticism, our erotic imaginations, attaching, them, attaching itself to or obsessing about things that aren't necessary to reproduction, that aren't just um, vaginal intercourse. And we can look at that and say, oh, that's a problem to solve. Or we can look at that and say, that's a marvel. And that's what makes humans distinct from squirrels. You don't see squirrels, um, you know, dressing up in fetish wear and having basically what is theater for two, um, 
you know, dom sub kinky sex. That's a human thing. And that's, it, it's just like dinner. You know, why is, why, why are meals so complicated? Why are our kitchens full of all these crazy implements? Why are these all, all these different cuisines? Why aren't we just chasing down rabbits in the park and tearing them apart with our bare teeth? Like, cats or <laughs> like um you know uh apex predators why do we have restaurants and why do we like that variety well because our cultures are complex our brains are complex and we need the variety of that kind of stimulation and nobody looks at food and goes well that's weird and other animals don't do dinner like that but people look at human sexual expression and they go well that's weird other animals don't do it like that when in reality, of course, if you spend any time reading about sex and other animals, there's a tremendous amount of variety of sexual expression. There may not be fetish wear and fetish parties. There may not be, um, you know, kinks as we would understand them, but there's a tremendous amount of sexual variance. Variance is the norm. Like when it comes to human sexuality, what people have to get in their heads is variance is the norm. That's what's normal. The more unique, personal uh, your sexual interests and expression are to you, actually, the more normal you are and that is. When we get back, we're going to pull those threads and we're going to talk about polyamory and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of other things that, that, that you just mentioned. But first, you're listening to Dan Savage and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Dan Savage about how to give sex advice. We haven't even gotten to that point yet, really. I do have in my back pocket a bunch of questions that we solicited from uh, listeners and and uh, students that my intern knows because I wasn't going to ask them directly. And uh, But before that, I want to ask you about this idea that variance is normal that you famously called kinks uh, cops and robbers with your pants off. What do you mean by that? Well, I call it cops and robbers for grownups with your pants off. <laughs> okay, um, that is absolutely a, a very, very important um, uh, <laughs> qualification. I accept that. Relationships are a, a story two people tell each other about what they mean as a couple and who they are to each other. And we have to live up to that story. That's why sometimes being in a relationship can improve a person because you have to, you can't at all times, you fall short often, I certainly do, but you have to kind of live up to being the person you promised your partner you would try to be or may have deceived them to believe at the beginning of the relationship you were, right? 
and when it comes to sex uh, and eroticism, there's a narrative there too. Um, you particularly see this uh, in women. You know, w women frequently complain to me about their male partners watching porn. And sometimes the women who are complaining to me about their male partners watching porn have enormous collections of erotica that they read, uh, that are stories, that are narratives. And cops and Rob, you know, a, a kinky sexual scenario, whether it involves role play or just a meta narrative about who the couple are to each other when they're being sexual, that's a story. And a lot of people need that story. And we need that kind of play. And it's very healthy for adults to engage in play. Um, one of the things that I've noticed and I think is linked is the emergence in urban places of cafes and clubs where people get together, they play board games, they play, you know, role-playing games that are prompted by, you know, decks of cards where people, you know, or mystery dinner theaters or escape rooms. Adults are reintroducing play into their social lives. So it's not just, you know, drinking and eating and drinking and eating, um, that there are activities that, that stimulate the brain. Well, people, adults do that also in their sex lives. And so a, a sexual encounter is a story that two people are creating together. Sometimes that story can be very simple, and sometimes people want that story to be very simple. Um, and sometimes that story can be very elaborate. And that's what people who are kinky uh, in the ways that come to mind when you say kinky people are doing. They're creating narratives uh, and playing roles or exaggerating you know, who they are in the relationship um, or exploring their fears. Uh, we go to watch, you know, horror movies. We watch action movies. We watch Game of Thrones. We watch a lot of film and television that show us things that, you know, wars, you know, destruction of the planet, things we wouldn't want to actually experience, but there's some part of us that wants to vicariously experience that. And that can create for us a kind of catharsis. It can, can purge those emotions and those fears. People do that in their sex lives, too. A lot of people's sexual fantasies revolve around their insecurities and their fears, and they want to step into them and experience them safely, consensually, in a contained and controlled way. You know, when you go to see a movie about, you know, murder, mayhem, part of you goes, this isn't real, this isn't real, this isn't happening. It's just, it's fiction. It's a play. It's a movie. And when it comes to sex and kinks, people will engage in, throw themselves into a circumstance where they're the actor, they're the star. Um, were the stars of that drama. And part of them is going, I'm experiencing this, but it isn't real, even though I'm the one acting this out at this moment. And that's where kinks come from emotionally. And that's what can be so healthy about exploring them. Um, I hate to be you know, that person who comes on a show like this and keeps saying there are studies, but there are studies that show that people who are active in kink communities, who actively explore their kinky sexual fantasies are emotionally healthier. That doesn't mean just throw kinks at somebody and they're going to be healthier. These are people who've self-actualized to a point where they have given themselves permission to do these things that they want to do in a healthy, constructive way in, uh, you know, as a part of a subculture that talks about consent and boundaries and limits, and people can explore these taboo, quote-unquote, desires safely. And to get to that point, you've done a lot of emotional work, right? 
you're not struggling with shame about these kinks anymore. Um, and so it's not, you know, sometimes people look at those studies, like kinky people are healthier, and they think, well, I can't everybody, which everybody should obviously be kinky. No, 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 that's not what people acting on their kinks are demonstrating, um, you know, in the studies that show them being healthier. These are people who are living their best lives and have found a place in a community where they get to act on who they are, what they want, and be rewarded for it and not feel conflicted about it. You know, this this notion of sex negativity and sex positivity takes um, plays a role here because yeah, I got a lot kind of, of people... far away from that question. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's it, it, it's a great answer because a lot of um, people, when they call your show or when they talk about kinks, they like to imply that kinks are the product of trauma, that uh, I was spanked as a kid. Therefore, I like spanking. I was a, v- a victim of sexual abuse and therefore I have rape or ravishment fantasies that but that's not right. what kink is. Right. Kink isn't the the making light of the darkness it's it's this notion that that sex is about play and not se- not reproduction necessarily and 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 it seems sex to me about, that it's about play and, oh, absolutely sex is not about reproduction and everybody knows that but nobody wants to admit it um we have a lot more sex and we are wired for having a lot more sex than we are capable of having children of course you know um sex is about reproduction on some basic level, but in human culture and human societies, what is going on? Why do we have so much sex? What is sex for as we live it in our lives? And it's for intimacy, connection, uh, release, um, joy, pleasure, 99% of the time, 1% of the time or less, it's two people trying to make a baby. Most of the time, if they're straight people having sex, opposite sex partners, they're desperately trying to avoid making a baby while having sex. So sometimes people look at gay people and think, what, you know, your, your sex is meaningless and pointless. Well, it's meaningless and pointless in the same way heterosexual sex is most of the time. And I, you know, I'm the product of a heterosexual sexual act. Thank you, my parents. Um, I'm gonna see my siblings for lunch later today. Thank my parents for that too. I love having siblings. Um, I'm not running down the sort of uh, meaning of heterosexual sex when there is reproductive intent and how important that can be to someone and transcendent it can be. And that can never be a part of gay sex, that particular element of what's transcendent about heterosexual sex, that's stepping into the generations, right? But what is sex for? Ask anybody, anybody who's willing to be honest, when you have sex, what are you doing? Are you trying to make a baby? No. No. Once or twice. Three or four times. 21 times tops if you're Michelle Duggar. But if you're a regular person having sex, mostly it's for pleasure and human connection. And that seems to be the role it serves in human societies. What it's most, what it creates alongside the next generation is families, connection, friendships, important experiences. A web of sexual connection really flows through our lives that isn't about reproduction. But like all connections, 
there is a way to that people have to protect themselves and they have to have boundaries. And you use the phrase um, zone of erotic autonomy, which I find super fascinating. And this comes to play, especially you mentioned earlier, when partners are complaining because uh, their partner has a lot of porn and they look a lot of porn or, or, or they're attracted to other people or, or there are people who – Right. Or any porn at all. What is the zone of erotic autonomy and, 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 and how does it and how does it establish boundaries that that are, I think, more radical than 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 people like to admit? Becoming a couple does not mean you meld together emotionally and sexually. It also doesn't give you the right to police your partner emotionally and sexually. When I tell people they need to allow for their partner a zone of erotic autonomy, when suggesting or urging is for them to recognize that there is a place where your your claim on who your partner is sexually ends and they're allowed to have an interior life that isn't yours that's not your property that doesn't involve you um, that doesn't mean your partner can make a monogamous commitment and cheat on you but I hear all the time from people who are really frustrated because they noticed their partner noticed someone else and be attracted to someone else. And, or their partner has a fantasy uh, about something that cannot be realized, or they can't realize, or is attracted to different types of people, uh, or different genders, and they can't be everything. And somehow people have it in their heads that you should be someone's everything, and you can't be someone's everything. And it puts too much pressure on a relationship to be someone's everything. And I don't know. I just see people, you know, I'm trying to make relationships work. I'm trying to save monogamous relationships and non-monogamous relationships. And I see people doing things that are destroying their relationships, constantly scrutinizing your partner for evidence that they might want to have sex with somebody else or have ever thought about having sex with somebody else or might have a crush on somebody else. What is to be gained? You know, sometimes think about sex with somebody else. You sometimes, even if you are honoring your monogamous commitment might want to you don't that's what a monogamous commitment means it doesn't mean you don't want to have sex with other people it means you don't have sex with other people and you know that you're still committed to your partner and you have these private inner thoughts that are yours and yours alone and yet you are in a sense persecuting your partner you are deposing them you know questioning them policing them and creating conflict that could be avoided if you just said you know what that falls within your zone of erotic autonomy. You need to be considerate. We have to be considerate of our partner's feelings. It's inconsiderate to ogle the waiter or waitress in front of your partner, whether you're monogamous or non-monogamous. It's inconsiderate also to the waiter. But your partner stole a glance at the barista and you just happened to look at them at that moment and you saw how they looked at the barista when the barista wasn't looking at them so the barista didn't feel sexually harassed. And you blow up about that and spend a week furiously angry about that instead of just looking at that and going, zone of erotic autonomy. I checked out my personal trainer or hairdresser or whatever it was last week or somebody at the gym. My partner checked out the barista. He was being or she was being as subtle as they, she could be. And so was demonstrating some consideration by not just going, oh, wooga, wooga at the barista, right? <laughs> and they deserve some credit for that. It's just like, you know, I get, I hear all the time from people who are like, I demanded my partner never look at porn. And they told me they stopped and I caught them. 
And then it turns out they caught them because they were digging through their things or broke into their computer or phone and scoured their browser history. And they, their partner, yeah, looked at a little porn and went to a, an effort to, to hide that from you so that you wouldn't be tormented by the thought of it. And that is one way of demonstration. And not invading someone's privacy like that is one way of honoring their zone of erotic autonomy. I demand consideration from my husband about my insecurities, about certain things, and I also allow for him to have a private life and an inner life. And you need that, even when you're in a couple. You can't be expected to sacrifice that. That's not a relationship, that's a police state. And nobody wants to live in a police state. And no one lives joyfully in a police state. You want someone to be joyfully in your relationship? Don't police them. You're not the Stasi, you're the partner. Do you think that most, I mean, this is an unfair question, but but do you think that most couples are unhappy uh, and struggling, or do you think that they're ha- happy and negotiating? I mean, uh, like I said, it's it's an unfair question, but I'm looking at one of the one of the questions that that I got from the the, the submitted, and it's the only one that's that's a little heartbreaking. Although there's there's another that's a little negative. It, the person says it's normal to feel lonely when you don't have a significant other, but what should you do when you have a partner but still feel lonely? So the first question I have is. You know, is there an epidemic of unhappiness in relationships? And the second is, how do you respond to a question like that where someone is admitting that they're that they're in a relationship and yet they still feel lonely? There seem to be concurrent epidemics of, uh, you know, people talk about the sexual recession. People are less likely to marry now, less likely to be married or be partnered now and an epidemic of unhappiness in relationships. Um, my favorite, uh, I wanted to cite Joan Price writes about sex and older people. And she has famously said that it's better to feel lonely because you're alone than to feel lonely in a relationship. And it's a bad sign if you're in a relationship and you feel lonely and maybe a sign that it would be better to be alone. And then, you know, if you're alone and you feel lonely, you can do something about it. You can put yourself out there. You can join clubs, you can volunteer, you can go places, do things, uh, you can have autonomy. But my favorite philosopher when it comes to feelings of uh, these ambiguous feelings that are a part of being in a relationship, that, that yet that people then identify as a sign that maybe they should be out of the relationship, is Stephen Sondheim, <laughs> who wrote uh, musicals. Uh, and in Company, uh, an unmarried character asks a married character, are you ever sorry you got married? And Company is a show about marriage. Um, and the person, it's a song, and the person replies to this question in song, you're always sorry, you're always grateful. And that's hmm. the tension that we live with when we're partnered. Um, when you're in a couple, like... A, to enter into a couple is to go one way at a fork in the road, except it's a fork in a road that had at that point hundreds of thousands and millions of other possible forks you could have walked down with other potential partners. And you look back and you have regrets and your partner isn't perfect for you and you're not perfect for them. There is no the one. You know, people talk about, I got to find the one. Is this person the one? And they feel like I don't know they're the ones. That's proof they're not the one. 
there is no the one. There is at best a point seven two, and it's your job to round them up to the one, and they're doing you that favor too, and you should be mutually grateful. And you know, I've been with my husband for thirty years, and we have made it work by not drilling down on things that we are unsatisfied about, but shifting our focus to things we are happy to be with each other for um, and taking care of each other and not solving what we can't solve. You know, I, I talk about in my show, the price of admission to be in a relationship. There are certain prices of admission you're going to have to pay. And just, you go to the carnival, you pay the price of admission, you ride the roller coaster. If they're charging too much to ride the roller coaster, if the price of admission is too steep, you don't ride the roller coaster. But don't buy a ticket and then complain the entire time you're on the ride. Just don't ride. I look at my husband. There are lots of ways I've paid a price of admission to be with him, but it's worth it for this ride that we're on together. Only you know if it's worth it for you. But people have it in their heads that a relationship should fulfill all their emotional and sexual needs and that they should be happy. Like a relationship supposed to make you happy. And then they go when they're not happy. Well, obviously, this relationship isn't working because I wouldn't ever feel unhappy if it was doing what it's supposed to do. You are going to feel unhappy at times. Maybe it'll just be briefly during a day where you're otherwise content or even delighted at times. And maybe it'll be a period of months or even years but just i'm unhappy right this minute is not enough evidence that you need to exit the relationship in my opinion then then it's me saying you need to work on the relationship but there, there's also a point at which you have to recognize that no amount of work is going to make the relationship make you happy enough to stay to to achieve that balance between always sorry and always grateful how representative do you think your audience is to the wider sexual world? And, and, and there are times when I listen to your show and I think everyone <laughs> is a polyamorous furry who loves to hang from the ceiling and, and record their, their, their orgies on a Thursday night. And, <laughs> you know, obviously the audience – I do get a lot of calls from poly people. <laughs> you do. Yeah. You get a lot of calls from poly people. And – there is an element where certainly many poly people would like to argue that poly should be the new normal. So, so, so how representative is your audience and, and how, how, much, how much do you consider yourself on the vanguard of, 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 of sexual behavior <laughs> that you're really pushing a future? And I don't mean an agenda, but I mean just that, 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 that you're, you're out there enough that you're really telling us what, we're expected, what we should expect to see in the next five or ten years. Well, my agenda is not polyamory. I'm not an advocate right, of polyamory. Right. Polyamory exists, and I think we should be able to talk about it and see it. Um, poly, open relationships, polyamory, I don't, I'm not prescriptive about it. I don't think, you know, when I was young, I attempted to have monogamous relationships, and I failed. And I thought for a long time, I am failing at monogamy. And then one day had an epiphany, my road to Damascus moment where I realized, Oh no, no, monogamy is failing me. This doesn't work for me. And I can choose to do still have ethical relationships, but not have sexually exclusive relationships. 
And monogamy really in the gay community has always been a choice that a couple made. It was an opt-in choice. It was not a default setting. That's what I'm an advocate for. Make an active, thoughtful choice. That choice can be monogamy. I think there are advantages to monogamous relationships. If it's a successfully monogamous relationship, you're less likely to contract a sexually transmitted infection. Um, if you're having children, you have a certain degree of security about paternity. Uh, if you're the man, the woman always knows it's her child, but the man will know it's his child too, if you're monogamous. Um, for many people, there's a huge degree of emotional security in a monogamous relationship. I'm not dismissive of that. There are advantages to openness and polyamory that I think monogamous people should be willing to acknowledge as well. Um, one of the things that often destroys a monogamous relationship is boredom. Uh, sexual, you know, desire ebbs uh, and flows. And in a lot of monogamous relationship, it ebbs entirely until the relationship is not sexual and becomes very much like siblings uh, who live together. And there are, you know, if you're open or poly, you are able to have new experiences, to have variety and excitement, um, and to go on adventures together. One of the things I've been sort of toying with a lot in the last couple of years is this idea that a lot of people bring to me who are in monogamous relationships. They've been together 10 years and they say the spark is gone and they think that there's something wrong with their partner or them or the relationship when actually what created the sparks wasn't some like energy or chemistry between them like magic that's now gone. What created the spark at the beginning was they barely knew each other at the beginning of a relationship it feels like you're on an adventure because you are. You're the adventure they're on. They're the adventure you're on. And it's effortlessly adventurous and exciting. And then 10 years in, you're the constant. You're the given for each other. You're not the adventure they're on anymore. You're not the adventure. You're not, they're not the adventure you're on. You're not the adventure they're on. How do you get that adventurous feeling back? you have to consciously decide to go on adventures together. At the beginning, you were the adventure. Now you have to go on adventures together. How do you do that? Well, you could open the relationship or you can make a conscious decision to do risky things together that make you feel alive. Um, you know, the first time you, you're dating someone or you hook up with somebody for the first time, if you met on an app, you let this person into your home or you go into their home you let them into your body or they let you into their body and it's risky. That could be Jeffrey Dahmer. That could be a crazy person. You're, you're taking a risk and it gets the adrenaline flowing and the cortisone flowing and it's arousing. Risk and danger arouses us as a species. It's hardwired into the human experience. You have to manufacture that a decade in. My husband and I manufactured that by, you know, Sometimes having three ways with other men where we went on an adventure together. We did this thing together as a couple that enhanced our sexual connection that actually didn't drive us apart. It brought us together. Um, sometimes on top of another adult male human. <laughs> I'm for monogamy. If that's what as a couple works for you. I think some humility from people in monogamous relationships would be good. A lot of people believe they're in monogamous relationships and they're not because they're being cheated on. A lot of people in monogamous relationships eventually open them 
a crack or open them wide. Most people who are open or poly were in monogamous relationships at one time. Some people in monogamous relationships now were open or poly at the start or open or poly for a time that worked for them. You know, it's not that there are like, you know, blue sneeches and green sneeches, like two different kinds of people when it comes to monogamy or polyamory. These are all the same kinds of people making different choices that work for them. And those choices may evolve or change over the life of a relationship that most people hope will last for 30, 40, 50 years. And the choices that worked for you when you knew each other for a year versus the choices that worked for you when you know each other for three decades are going to be perhaps very different. And I want to point out also that that risk is relative because it need not be introducing someone or having sex in a place you can get caught. It may be trying a toy that makes you a little nervous or using language that, that, that makes you a little anxious or, or that, that, that the risk can be just the two people exclusive, that it doesn't have to be, although it can be introducing uncontrollable variables outside of your relationship, right? Because for someone who has never used a toy, right? Using a toy is, is, is a big deal. But you need then a partner who's GGG, uh, the three G's, I call them, good giving and game. You know, we should all aim to be good in bed, develop those skills. Giving, which means sometimes you give pleasure without an immediate return, that in the context of a relationship, sometimes the reciprocity comes a day or two later or a week later, not immediately. Um, And game for anything within reason. Um, You know, you want to be able to meet your partner reasonable sexual needs and what is reasonable is highly subjective what i consider reasonable when it comes to my husband um, may not be what you consider reasonable when it comes to listener if you have a husband your husband you get to decide for yourself what reasonable is but the more sort of engaged and playful you are the more content you're going to be sexually all of this like introduce toys try this try that it presumes to people who are still or ever were sexually attracted to each other. Sometimes people get together with people and partner up because they want to have a partner or have a family, and it was never about a strong sexual connection. Um, there's just so like there's so many layers to these conversations. I talk a lot about companionate marriages, and I think that they are wonderful and that they work if that's what both people want. Right? They want a companion. They don't necessarily want a playful sex partner. Sex isn't important to them. You don't have to be having a certain amount of sex or any sex in your relationship or your marriage for it to be valid or worthwhile or fulfilling. It just has to work for both of you. And if one person wants a companionate marriage without sex and the other person doesn't want that or didn't sign up for that, now what do you do? I think you have to make an accommodation. I think you allow your partner to do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane to discreetly get their sexual needs met elsewhere on their own time and come home to you and be the companion that you want them to be. I don't think you have a right to say to someone, particularly if you've decided, you know, 15 years and three kids in that you're done with sex, you don't get to tell them that they have to be done with sex. And they, you may tell them that and they may say, okay, and then they're going to do what they need to do to stay married and stay sane anyway. And I think it's better when those things are above board, even if what's above board is not tell me every detail, but DADT, don't ask, don't tell arrangements, where I'm not interested in sex anymore. 
I still love you, still want to be married to you. Don't humiliate me, right? Don't do anything that is going to make our kids feel insecure. Don't have affairs, but like take care of yourself and come home. That can work. There's a lot of people out there who have those kinds of relationships who I publicly identify as monogamous. Because when it comes to monogamy, there's really two different kinds. There's sexual monogamy, sexually exclusive relationships, and there's social monogamy, where two people are a couple and they're perceived to be monogamous because everyone is thought to be, unless they self-identify as open or poly, believed to be monogamous. So that is just like straight. People are, unless you come out as gay, you're perceived as straight. Um, people are, a lot of people out there have socially monogamous relationships where everyone in their lives, everyone, neighbors, friends, family, coworkers, all think they're monogamous because they allow people to make that perfectly reasonable assumption because most people who are pair bonded, coupled, married, uh, are monogamous, but not all people who are married are monogamous. You're, you're making me think of Esther Perel's comment that um, sometimes the victim of the affair isn't the victim of the marriage, right? That, that sometimes uh, stepping outside of the marriage is the healthiest thing that someone can do for that relationship. But I want to I want to I want to change gears a little bit, because Absolutely. if I don't if I don't uh, ask a couple of the questions that were sent here, I'm going to get yelled at. <laughs> and I think I, and I, and I do want people to have the experience of, of, of hearing Dan Savage's advice. So, so the first one I'm going to ask is, uh, I'll just read aloud. Uh, I'm a 23 year old cisgendered female. And I recently came out as bisexual. I want to experiment with other women, but because of my traditional background, I never really learned how sex with other women works. I have two questions. First, how do you define sex? And second, is there any advice you can give to a newbie like me? And I do want to say that one of the things that's striking about this is that this person uh, signed it by curious and is there a difference between? I mean, if 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 you come out as bisexual, can you claim to be bi curious? Uh, are those, uh, <laughs> or, or or is it just that that this person is just trying to find the right vocabulary to ask the question? I think right. Maybe what they mean is bi curious about getting started on this bisexuality stuff already, <laughs> right? Um, or bi anxious to get started. <laughs> I um, like bi anxious. I like that. That's an excellent term. So, what advice do you give to this person who first wants to know what counts as sex in this situation, and also uh, how does someone get started with exploration of their own sexual of their own bisexuality or or sexuality in general? People should have a broad definition of sex. Um, the broader your definition of sex, the more sex you're potentially going to have. Uh, I often hear from often heterosexual men who will say to me, you know, that they hope to have sex. They went home with somebody they didn't have sex, but it turned out they had oral sex. And like, is oral sex not sex? I thought we resolved this during the Bill Clinton sex scandal, that oral sex counts. Its last name is sex. Michelle Obama is an Obama. She's not the Obama that comes to mind when you say Obama, but is an Obama. I'm sure Michelle Obama will not like this metaphor. But anyway, um, <laughs> the broader your definition of sex, the more sex you're going to have and the more sexually fulfilled you're going to be. Um, sex can be mutual masturbation. Sex can be penetrative sex. Sex can be oral sex. Sex can be shared fantasies and solo masturbation. Sexting is a kind of sex. Um, sex is in the name. Uh, this is a problem that straight people tend to have that sex is one thing, it's PIV. Um, gay people are less uh, 
our definition is less narrow and, and broader. Um, and it benefits our sex lives. It's why gay people have more sex and are better at sex because we have a broader definition because we don't default to penetrative sex necessarily. We have a negotiation. Straight people get to consent. Yes, we're going to have sex and they stop talking because they know what that means. That means PIV. Two men going to bed together for the first time, they get to consent. They get to yes, let's have sex. It is the beginning of the conversation because what happens can't be assumed. We have to negotiate what our sexual desires, expectations, wants, needs are. Um, so this caller's question about how do you get started? Apps, like before the pandemic, something like 75-80% of same-sex couples met on dating apps and hookup apps. Um, and a plurality of opposite-sex couples were already meeting on apps. After the pandemic, I believe it's the overwhelming majority of both. Not quite 80% plus for opposite-sex couples, Opposite sex couples have more opportunities to meet through friends, at work, parties, whatever. Um, but if you want to meet other women uh, who are bi-curious, get on hookup apps, dating apps. And many, many, many women who are bisexual have come out in the last 10, 15 years. Um, bisexual women represent by themselves the majority of the LGBTQ community. And so you have lots of choices, but you gotta hang your shingle and you gotta put yourself out there. And then sex is whatever you want it to be. Sex is whatever in a moment, erotically, with another human being or beings gives you pleasure, gives them pleasure. And what does that look like for you? I can't tell you what sex should be for you. This person who asked this question, I can't tell you what sex is. That's a, that's a question that only you know the answer to. And it may take some experimentation with women before you figure out for you with women what is sex and then what from everything that is sex with a woman, what is the sex that you enjoy most or prefer or are good at and want to pursue further. But you got to put yourself out there. You got to take risks. And there are lots of other women in your shoes. So don't think like, oh, I'm going to put myself out there and it's all going to be very experienced lesbians who are annoyed that I'm inexperienced bisexual adult women. Most of the women out there seeking other women to date or have sex with are like you. Only a very small percentage are grumpy lesbians who don't want to date bi women. Okay, so next question, and this is also from, a, I guess, everyone's in their early 20s. Um, how do I get past dating guys who are great in bed but horrible to me outside of bed? <laughs> by having a zero tolerance policy for that. And if you aren't, if you can't trust your judgment anymore because you keep landing in bed with guys who then are awful to you outside of the bedroom, you should probably kick the can down the road a little bit. You should get to know somebody. Um, not that people can't have sex with somebody right away and it turns out to be a great relationship. My husband and I had a one night stand, it stuck. Um, but you, this particular person, there's, there's some, you have some blind spot where you keep, if this keeps happening, it's a, it's a them problem. They're not nice people, but it's also a, it's a you thing to solve. How do you control for this? Uh, by drawing it out a little longer, making them wait and having a better sense of who they are before you go to bed with them for the first time. 
Okay, next question, and I love this question because it's one that you get on your show, a version of a lot. <laughs> it's, I'm a hetero male, and I have a crush on one of my best friends. I've been friends with her for three years, and she hasn't expressed any interest in a relationship with me, but she doesn't really talk to me about other guys either. One time we were drunk at a party, and I told her I liked her, but when I asked her if she remembered, she said she didn't. I want to ask her on an official date, but I'm scared. I'll mess everything up somehow and ruin our friendship. What should I do? Risk ruining your friendship because it's not really a friendship if you're I, – I, I'm not saying that this person is a bad actor, but does have a kind of ulterior motive. Lots of people, good people can have an ulterior motive. Um, there's something you want from this person in this relationship, and you're afraid to ask for it because the answer might be no. People are terrified of rejection, right? Separating out, like, I might ruin this friendship, which is also a risk – Terrified of rejection. Rejection is helpful and clarifying. If she has no interest in you in the way that you hope, better to know so that you can cauterize that wound and stop living in hope or false hope that something might happen. You gotta, you gotta ask. And then when you ask, say, look, if the answer is no, say no. When it's men asking women on a date, Women are socialized to defer to men, not say no to men, which can lead men to believe that they're just not getting a straight answer or lead to believe they got the answer they wanted to get because the no was so subtle, right? So I really think it behooves men asking women out, particularly women they've known for three years on a date to say, look, if it's no, if you're not interested in me romantically, please, please tell me that. Just say so. You can say no to me. I won't. Be angry. I'm, uh, you know, a lot of women are afraid of men. Men are dangerous. Intimate partner violence is a thing. Women are murdered in bus stops because some dude told them to smile and they didn't. Like women have a very rational fear of how men react to rejection. So you say, I can take it. Like I will accept a no and it'll be awkward. But next time we see each other, it'll be awkward for three months, six months. And then we can be friends again. And it's possible to do that. I know people who are terrific friends who were with each other for a while or one wasn't interested in the other. And it just takes some time to emotionally get past that. You'll get past it faster if you've moved on from this, for th these hopes, if they're false, if you've moved on and found somebody to invest time and emotional energy in who actually wants you to be their romantic partner. Risk finding out that this person doesn't want to be that person so you can get to that next person faster. We're, we're almost out of time, and there is one topic that, it's a big topic, but we haven't had a chance to really deal with it, and I want to ask uh, quite explicitly, um, has the nature of consent changed since you've been doing this? There's This current generation, Gen Z, is so focused on what consent means, and mm -hmm. How has that how has that discourse changed since you've been doing it, and and what does the the consent discourse bring to sexual ethics? Well, we've been having the consent discourse for a long time. Um, you know, the first kind of mocking articles about uh, the culture of consent and yes means yes as opposed to no means no came out like twenty years ago, uh, when certain you know liberal college campuses instituted. Uh, Antioch consent policies. Yeah. yeah. Um, it used to be that people thought sex should happen spontaneously. 
and you should make a move. And talking about it would ruin the vibe, um, and it wasn't sexy. Uh, you were supposed to lunge at someone. And that if they didn't want that, if that was unwelcome, they would say no. Obviously, like I just said, women are socialized to defer to men and not say no to men. So that culture of, like, you got to opt out, put a burden on men and an advantage, burden on women, and it advantaged men in those moments where women would wind up going along with sex they didn't want to have because they didn't know how to say no or didn't feel safe saying no. And men would think it was completely consensual. And it may have been like the, she went with it, and that is a kind of consent, but it's consent under kind of coercive circumstances. So you had situations where women had sex that they felt violated by, and guys had no idea. Guys who wouldn't have wanted to violate her, guys who liked the women that they had that kind of sex with, then found out that she felt terrible out of it and felt like monsters. Like that situation set everybody up to fail or get hurt or hurt someone. So now we have like conversations about yes means yes, active, enthusiastic, ongoing consent. Um, what's interesting about Christine Emba's book is she writes about consent is a floor, not a ceiling, right? It's not enough hmm. to get a yes. Um, that sex needs to be better and we need to be better at it and better to and with each other and that people need to have standards uh, and not just, you know, you should want it to be a good experience, not just a consensual experience. And you can hold both those thoughts you had at the same time. There's a lot of consensual sexual experiences people have that are terrible, that leave them feeling used or dehumanized. Um, you want an experience to be consensual and rewarding. Now, sometimes with sexual relationships, in retrospect, we feel bad about things that in the moment we felt good about. You know, you're with somebody for three months, you have a lot of sex, it's great sex, you have hopes for this relationship, they dump you. And then all of that sexual activity that was good and you enjoyed, that was consensual, you feel very differently about. Not talking about that, right? Talking about got to a yes, and then the sex was bad or clumsy or aggressive or dehumanizing in a way um, that a person didn't enjoy. Some pe dehumanization is a kink that actually some people enjoy, but dehumanizing in a way that most people don't enjoy. And this is a complicated, more informed conversation about consent that we're having now. You know, we went from no means no to yes means yes to yes has to be enthusiastic and ongoing and sober to yes, even enthusiastic yeses or ongoing yeses may not be enough, that we need to hold ourselves to higher standards and expect better from our sexual partners than just a fastidiousness about getting a yes. Expect better from our sexual partners. I think that in itself is one of the great themes of your advice. Expect, accept better from what we expect for ourselves, of how we treat others, and what constitutes good, consensual, interesting, playful sex. Dan, I can't thank you so much. I have wanted to talk to you for so long, and this has been about 4% of the stuff that I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about labels. I want to talk, I mean, there, there's just so much that, that I want to talk about. But, but we have to stop here. So, Dan, um, for everyone uh, who, who wants more Dan Savage, the Savage Love podcast, where can people find you? I'm uh, at, I'm in still in a bunch of newspapers. My column is, but if you want the full column, it's at savage.love. 
where you'll also find uh, my podcast, uh, The Savage Lovecast. Um, and there's, you know, a thousand word column available for free every week. There's a bonus column if you subscribe. Uh, there's a 45 minute version of the podcast that's for free. So nice and uh, lots of content, lots of questions, lots of answers and guests. And there's an extended version of the podcast for people who subscribe at savage.love. And I will tell you that as a uh, member of the Magnum uh, subscribers, it is absolutely worth it. Dan Savage, thank you so much again for joining us on Why. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a sub. You've been listening to Dan Savage and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Dan Savage and asking how to give sex advice. One of my favorite pieces of sex advice is actually from the Talmud, which is a Jewish religious text. Uh, it is not prohibited in the Hebrew scriptures to have premarital sex, despite what people tell you. It's, it's just not. And so there is advice on how to manage that in the Talmud, which is this other text. And it says, you probably shouldn't do it. But if you are, you should go into the next town and wear black. <laughs> and I love that because basically what that's saying is, look, do what you got to do, but be discreet and don't ruin everyone's life. Don't don't ruin someone's reputation. Don't ruin your, 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 your own reputation. Go in the next town. Be discreet. Wear black. So much of what Dan is talking about in this episode is a version of this. You want to have a playful, good, interesting, lively sex life, but you want to do it in a way that doesn't hurt anyone and that really fulfills you and everyone else. What does that mean? What does it mean to fulfill? It means to be GGG, good giving and game. It means to take the interests of your partner into your own heart and follow through with those in a way that you are comfortable with. So much of this discussion is about what it means to be a good person. What it means to be a good sexual person is a subset of what it means to be a good person. That's why we're having conversations about ethical non-monogamy right now. That's why we're having conversations about consent. That's why we're having all of these discussions, because ultimately, whether Dan realizes it or not, all of his advice is philosophical advice. He's trying to tell people how to live a good life life, having good sex, and being good people, while at the same time embracing the sex-positive attitude where this central part of our humanity is on display, is up for discussion. Communication, he didn't use the phrase uh, in our discussion, but he always uses the phrase on a show, use your words. When it comes to sex, use your words. Use your words for play, use your words for expressing your desire, and use your words to advocate for yourself. You know, this discussion 
could have gone a whole variety of different ways. And we could have really gone down some rabbit holes, including some things that maybe some people wouldn't have been comfortable with. But I really hope in the end, the discussion was something that was accessible to everybody and that everybody, even if they're made a little squeamish by the topic, they walked away learning something because I have learned a tremendous amount from Dan Savage. And I hope that you all continue to learn from him and me as well. If you've been listening to this episode on Sunday evening on Prairie Public, please know that a longer version with almost 30 more minutes of discussion is available online and as a podcast. Visit yradioshow.org to listen or subscribe for free. For everyone else, rate us on iTunes and Spotify to help spread the word about the show. Follow us on all the usual social networks. Our handle is always at yradioshow. And please help us continue broadcasting by making your tax-deductible donation at yradioshow.org. Click Donate in the upper right-hand corner to go to UND's alumni donation portal. We exist solely on the money you provide. Thank you again to my guests, the folks at Prairie Public, especially Skip Wood, our long-suffering engineer. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein signing off for Y Radio. Thanks for listening. And as always, it's an honor to be with you. Y is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life. Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>